Hey everyone, Benjamin Block here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. Today's guest is Sports Illustrated's Ben Ryder, author of Astro Ball, the book everybody's talking about. Released on July 10th, it's already shot up to number three on the New York Times bestseller list. Ben reveals how a 2014 assignment where he was tasked with crafting a magazine feature about the Houston Astros, baseball's worst team at the time, sparked a journey that resulted in a career-altering book. Mixed into our conversation are some inspiring anecdotes and childhood memories, along with, of course, how this season's playoff picture is starting to take shape. Now, here's Ben and I in full. All right, Ben. So I want to start out with something topical. First of all, the book is great, and you've you've been all over the country. Um, but with the trade for Roberto Asuna, um, obviously, you know, just finished serving out the domestic violence and now joining a club that's all about gut and, you know, the sum of all parts. How do you sort of make sense? I know you wrote a little bit about it. How do you make sense of that? Well, at first, uh, the trade certainly took me by surprise, and this is coming from somebody who uh, has spent months and months and years, in fact, thinking about this team and digging inside this team and uh, getting to know all of its key players and front office members. Uh, one thing I learned was that they do value character. This is, in fact, a key to their entire rebuilding strategy, which is not only pushing the numbers and analytics as far as they can go, but factoring back in human factors. You know, things like drive yeah. and growth mindset and character. Um, so how do you figure that they made a trade to bring in somebody who's shown, really, uh, allegedly, an atrocious lack of it? I mean, I think you have to think about it from a higher level, though. You know, all of these things, all of this focus on character and stuff like that was for one reason, and it was to win, right? Like, winning, they always saw as a cure-all to everything. That's why they endured so many, not just horrible seasons, but embarrassing seasons uh, year after year. They always thought it would be worth it at the end of the day, uh, that people would forget about it if they won. And I think that in their calculation as far as adding Asuna, that was their ultimate goal, uh, clearly. You know, like, there are some potential downsides. It's a real risk, not just from a public relations standpoint, but from a potential to disrupt the clubhouse, bring in distractions, all those sorts of things. But I think they thought, when they factored everything together, that at the end of the day, this would help them win, that Asuna would stay clean, and that whatever public relations hit they took in the short term um, would be overwhelmed in the future. That's the way I explain it. Yeah, and and I and I really enjoyed reading what you said in in SI. I mean, you called that uh, you called this Jeff Luno's riskiest move just because it seems to run opposite to those human factors. And there was obviously a closed door meeting with the players. Um, did you hear anything that that came out of that, or or is this just a PR thing that's going to play itself out through winning? You think? I think ultimately. It will, at least that's what they think it will. I mean, I think there's still a lot of potential for this thing to blow up, blow up on them. You know, not only if he does something again, similar to what he allegedly did, but perhaps if, you know, pictures or videos or new detail comes out from a night that remains pretty opaque or very opaque, actually, in part because mm -hmm. it happened in Canada and the legal system is a bit more uh, closed there. Uh, that's an so, yeah, point. There's all sorts of potential fallout that could, you know, result from this. But look, I mean, as I said, 
these guys are focused on winning. And a lot of times that means embracing positive things, but in this case, you know, it, it means embracing something with a significant downside, chasing the upside it might bring. Right. And, yeah, you also made the point that the Yankees did a similar thing with Chapman. So winning does seem to be the cure-all. I just I thought it was interesting timing. I don't know how you felt about it with the release of your book and the promotion of it um, sort of being tied together, obviously. Um, but let's, yeah, let's switch to the book. So, I mean, this has essentially been five years of your life, and you talked a lot about the process over the outcome. Um, can you maybe just expand on that a little? Sure, yeah. I mean, look, obviously this all jumped off from the story I wrote in Sports Illustrated in 2014 when they were coming off three absolutely horrible years, 106, 107, and 111 losses. Uh, You know, I got kind of unprecedented or recently unprecedented access to their front office to sit in the room with them as they were talking about who they were going to pick number one overall in the draft. Um, and some other discussions, too, sitting next to Nolan Ryan and Craig Biggio um, oh, wow. and Jeff Luno. And, you know, I didn't go in there thinking I was going to write necessarily a positive story about this. Certainly didn't go in there thinking it was going to be a cover because it wasn't supposed to um, until just a couple days before the story came out. It wasn't supposed to be a cover. All I did was I went in there with an open mind to try to figure out what these guys were up to, why they were so bad, and if they had any plan for how to get better. I came away thinking, sorry, I came away thinking that yes, they certainly did have a plan to get better, and it was a novel one, and it was one that I thought, if it worked, uh, could really serve as as a new blueprint for building a terrible team into a winner. Yeah, and and have they never, uh, you know, come out of that, and the meeting has gone a different way, or things have transpired in a different way? Um, Do you think? that it still would have, I mean, it still would have been a compelling story, but I guess when did it become, okay, this can be, this can be a cover. When did that sort of switch happen? Well, that's not my call. That's the call of the editor of the magazine, Chris Stone. Um, right. You really, talk about a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of give the backstory in the book about how this cover came to be. And it's a bit funny because a lot of people were pretty pissed off about it, not just outside, not just in the fans, but some people, Within Sports Illustrated, we're, we're not pleased uh, with this decision. But it really came out from, came from the story. You know, I think that Chris and I both thought that not only had we just kind of gotten this unprecedented inside look at the way the most modern of sports teams operates, which is worthy on itself, but that, uh, you know, their plan, their grand experiment, as it were, uh, was cover worthy. It was new. It was fresh. It was exciting. So that's why we made that big prediction at the time. However, of course, four years later, I doubt there would have been a book if they had kind of tailspin into not just like a three-year loser, but like the most disastrous, sustained loser of all time. Right. Still would have been an interesting story for sure, but maybe not as not as celebrated. And which, you know, you actually, you know, that was my next question or my next thought I wanted to sort of talk about was, what if the prediction had not come true in 2014 with the book still been written? But I guess that sort of answers my question. It may have may have just been, um, you know, one of your, what are you up to now, 23 or 24 features for Sports <laughs> Illustrated or so? Yeah, so. I, think it's, I think it's 25 cover stories uh, for me that's now. Amazing. It's certainly the one that's made the biggest splash at the time and going forward. I mean, look, I think that they had got improved 
to the point in 2017, obviously, that had they not won the World Series, they would still serve the model and still, it would still be a fascinating story, like an inside real-life story of how an organization can turn itself around in a very modern way. But, uh, you know, certainly the fact that they actually did it helped. That, yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. Yeah, definitely, it definitely still would have resonated. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, how many, how many drafts did you write for this book? <laughs> well, I don't really write drafts. I'm kind of a guy who revises as he goes along, uh, okay. chapter by chapter. But process wise, you know, I would probably wouldn't advise first time authors of books as I was to do it this way because you know, I had been reporting the story for essentially four plus years, ever since 2014. So I had a huge amount of, you know, material in my notebook, a huge amount of sources and things like that in the organization. I think I talked to 46 members of the organization as players and front office executives mostly wow. uh, since 2014. But as far as writing the book, I actually sat down. I probably had about, you know, 10 weeks to crank out a draft. And then there was a little bit of revision or about a few weeks more of revision after that because we knew we wanted to get it out, you know, during this season. So it was a pretty condensed timeline. That's, that's incredible. And I guess thinking in terms of features, what is, what would that, what do you think that would equate to? Maybe at least, at least 10, 10 <laughs> well, more features, right? You know, I'm a magazine writer, so I viewed it this way and I have to give the Astros credit. Because one of the things that I took away from the book and from digging into the story was the importance of focusing on process over outcome. You know, it's very easy to imagine a day in the future when you have that World Series ring on your finger or you have, you know, your first hardcover cover that you've written in your hands and fixate on that. But, you know, you're not going to get there without the day-to-day grind and the day-to-day decisions and work you put in. So that's really how I focus this book each on this book each day. So it was essentially, I had, I figured I had to write about 10 very long features to comprise the book, probably about 7,000 words each on average. And I figured I had to do one of those each and every week until it was done. And that's what I did. And it's interesting. I mean, you, you kind of have a cool parallel, you know, with the Astros winning and your book first coming out. There are a lot of parallels to the process. So that's something fun to look back on. Um, and I'm curious, a couple weeks ago, I was actually talking with John Worth, I'm your, your buddy there at Sports Illustrated. He told me that when he first got to SI, Frank DeFord had given him a really great piece of advice telling him to really pick a sport, pick a focus, and just and get really good at that. And and I just I found that to be some pretty cool advice that he shared with me. Did you get anything sort of uh, anything that stuck with you or any, any uh, good piece of advice when you first landed at uh, Sports Illustrated? Um, I'm not sure I have one that stands out as much as Frank DeFord's advice uh, does for John Wertheim. Um, I guess I gravitated towards baseball from the beginning, uh, although I have written about all sorts of other sports, including, you know, NFL, NBA, uh, and that's for a specific reason, which is I actually, I guess I approached it a different way. I did want to get very good at baseball because the longer you do it, the more sources you accrue, Mm, the more you yeah. understand the game, the better your stuff gets. But I always kind of view sports writing as not really about sports. I mean, it is, but to me, the best sports writing is almost an excuse to tell a more universal human story that connects with people. You know, I, I kind of say it, it's sometimes like when you give your kid, you know, a healthy food that's wrapped up in 
a more delicious food. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's like the delivery vehicle for a story that for stories that I hope might have wider implications. And that's certainly what my goal was um, with Astro Ball. Yes, it is a very deep inside story, deeply embedded with you know a modern successful sports team. But I, I think there are a lot of lessons in it that will resonate, you know, in all sorts of other industries and for individuals as well as they try to face some of the challenges we're faced with in the modern world. Yeah, and as far as the impact and the influence that you wanted Astro Ball to have on all of its readers, um, are there a couple specific that you can that you can give as an example? Yeah, I mean specifically, <clears throat> you know, we're faced right now with all this data and you know, the prospect of artificial intelligence kind of taking over from us and the idea that computers uh, will eventually surpass humans and, you know, human factors, human observation, gut instinct don't matter anymore. I think the Astros serve as a model as how to properly use all of those tools we have at our disposal as far as data. And that means using them as a tool, not using them to make your decisions. I think humans have to stay on top. They have to recognize that there are factors in every decision, and there always will be, that won't be able to be quantified by an algorithm. So that it's really a way of man and machine working together to get the best out of each of their capabilities as long as man remains on top and makes the final call. That's well said, well put. Um, What was your team growing up? I was a Mets fan as a kid. Um, I grew, you grew up, up in New Jersey, New York metropolitan area. Yeah, I grew up in New Jersey um, mostly until actually when I was six, my family moved to London because my dad's job was oh, transferred over there, um, and it was a very different time to try to follow baseball, especially as a kid from abroad than it is now, when you can essentially watch every game on the internet. Back then. <laughs> Every morning I tried to follow, you know, Straw and Doc and Ronnie <laughs> and all those guys by running downstairs uh, to get the newspaper first thing and hoping that towards the end, in tiny font, they printed the previous night's box score. So that's really how I mostly followed this team, uh, at least for most of my early childhood until I moved back to the States when I was 10. Did that sort of inspire or spark any you know, any desire to, to join the world that you're in right now? I certainly think it might have, you know. And I remember the first game I ever attended was in 1987 at Yankee Stadium, actually. My grandfather took me to a Yankees-White Sox game. And it ended up not being a normal game. It ended up being like a 17-inning game that the Yankees lost. Ah. But I insisted on staying uh, through the bitter end, and it was a bitter end, and I loved it anyway. So certainly, uh, those as it is as they do for everybody, those foundational experiences I'm sure kind of guided me uh, in my adult life. That's that's amazing. Those are really cool memories to have. Um, all right, so lastly, I'll I'll just I'll switch to modern day. Um, so what do you make of of the standings, division by division? You know, it's I was just taking a peek at it the other day, and speaking of the Yankees. You know, you get the Yankees nine games back, and essentially, you know, they have, let's see, I think the Indians are seven games worse than the Yankees, but they're nine or ten games up in their division. So it's just, it's been a crazy year, right? It has, especially in the American League. You're really looking at a polarized league with the haves and have-nots. Look, I mean, two of the divisional races are 
almost certainly over. The Red Sox are going to win the AL East. The Indians are going to win the AL Central. I would think that the Astros should win the AL West. They're up by four and a half games at the moment on the surging A's. But, you know, talent-wise, certainly the Astros are the class of that division. So here it is. It's early August, and you might be looking at only one race. And it's not really even a race. It's just a race for which of the A's and the Mariners will get home field advantage in the one-game wild card playoff. (laughs) Uh, Of course, they're still within striking distance of the Yankees. So that could be interesting if the Yankees kind of struggle continues. But for having so much time left in the season, um, it's interesting that there's really not much that can happen as far as possibilities. Although certainly once the playoffs roll around, particularly on the AL side, uh, there's going to be a, a lot of uncertainty indeed. The final month or so is going to be absolutely wild. And and switching to the to the NL, what are you what are you seeing in the NL that? you know, that excites you or piques your interest? Obviously some better races there. Every one of the divisions uh, is, you know, the first-place team is less than a two-game lead. I think the Dodgers remain the class of the league, especially after having such a terrible first two months to be here threatening for the best record in the league. Um, I think they'll probably uh, emerge from the NOS. The story I'm really watching going forward is the Nationals, though. I mean, probably the most disappointing team in baseball, three games above 500, five and a half games behind the Phillies in the NL East. But look, this is a team that has been built for seven years to win a World Series. And the window might be closing a bit with Bryce Harper becoming a free agent after the year. And it's possible they'll get through these seven years without having won a single playoff series. So really, when you talk about drama, when you talk about possibility – um, what happens with the Nationals here over the next two months is probably the story I'm going to be most closely watching in the NL. That's interesting. Yeah, I can remember just two months back, I think, or, or about then, when the Yankees and Nationals were playing a series and everybody was dubbing it the potential World Series matchup, and it's amazing how things have just really shifted since then. And it's the it, reminder of that the Nationals have never won a playoff series is is just astounding. Um, it is. And it's another reminder, that, which is something that the Astros understood, which is that winning is about more than putting together, you know, teams that have the best numbers, right? It's more than just using an algorithm to assemble a group of people who can perform individually. It's about assembling a group that can perform collectively and, in fact, collectively exceed the sum of their individual parts. That's something that the Astros figured out beyond all their algorithms, and it seems like it's something the Nationals might have some work to do on. Yeah, that's, you know, and, and you really tied a bow on it there because that could that could easily, um, it, I think there's enough there for there to be a book. Um, and I'm not saying that, I'm sure you're getting enough of that. They're saying, everyone's probably saying, hey, congrats on Astro Ball. When's the next book? What's the next book? So uh, <laughs> that's, that could be that if you're entertaining it, but um is what's that? What has that part of this journey been like for you, people? I'm sure there's a lot of that, right? People saying, "What's next?" So, <laughs> well, you know what most people say, and I've done a number of readings now in New York and Austin and Houston. Uh, really great, enthusiastic turnouts. So but the question I always get is, "When's it being made into a movie?" So uh, <laughs> that would, I certainly, I certainly think that uh, it, it would be a good one, and it would have a more satisfying ending probably, than its predecessor, Moneyball, because this team actually won. So perhaps stay, stay tuned for that.
That's true, and maybe you could figure out to get yourself a little cameo in it somehow. (laughs) (laughs) I'd just take it being made. (laughs) There you go. Well, thanks again for the time. After Ball is amazing, and all the success that that you've gotten is, is completely deserved, and I appreciate the time. Thanks again, Ben. Hey, Benjamin. Thanks for having me on. My thanks to Ben Ryder for joining me and letting us inside his world for a bit. If you haven't read his book yet, I'd encourage you to check it out. Once again, it's called Astro Ball, The New Way to Win It All. And if you enjoyed this episode or others I've done, please take a minute to subscribe and review the podcast. Until next time, this has been Benjamin Block. Thanks for listening.